It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Monday, 18th of December on The Michael Reed Show this morning. The Minister for Justice and Policing, the current cutting of supports for Ukrainian refugees and a fire at a hotel earmarked for those seeking international protection. The story of an Irish woman desperately trying to get her children back from Egypt after they were taken by her father and the €1 million Euro windfall for every JAA county board. But does it bring its own headaches? Who gets what and how much? And is it time to start treating ourselves with a little bit more compassion? You can text WhatsApp 86 658 or you can call us 0419832000. She was appalled by the disturbing scenes in Galway last night. A statement from the Minister for Justice. And it's in light of that investigation which is underway into a fire at a hotel just outside Uchtarard in Galway. Helen McEntee said there was no justification for arson. The investigation is currently underway and she urges anyone with information about the matter to contact the Garda confidential line or any Garda station. Minister Helen McEntee joins us online this morning. Um, Minister, good morning. Thank you for taking our call. Um, For obvious reasons, I don't want to get into what happened in Galway by virtue of there's a Garda investigation ongoing. However, it is a worrying development, is it not? It is. And look, I mean, this was an extremely disturbing incident to happen on Saturday night, early into Sunday morning. And I think it was quite sinister. Um, This was accommodation that perhaps hasn't been in use for a number of years, but that was due to house uh, 70 people who are and have come to this country seeking international protection. Um, it was set alight, so this was vandalism. Uh, it was arson of uh, private property, and both of these or any of these um, criminal offences come with very strong criminal sanctions. So we cannot make any excuses. There's absolutely no justification for anybody setting a light to somebody's private property, uh, no matter what. Uh, their view is no matter what they think um, might be going on in the area. So uh, Gardaí have an investigation launched. I spoke to the Garda Commissioner this morning uh, and that is taking place and that is underway uh, in what is a, a small community. But, you know, we have to be very clear here. There is absolutely no justification for arson. Mm-hmm. No matter what the issue, no matter what people's concerns, this was vandalism and it was a very sinister act to take place. Now, we've listened to condemnation right across the board from the Taoiseach to yourself, local councillors and local representatives. Is there a concern that this is now beginning to grow in terms of support for pushing people seeking international protection or Ukrainian refugees 
out of communities that we don't want them here or is it still a tiny minority of people? Do you know, I, I think the vast majority of people want to provide protection and to support people, whether they're coming from Ukraine where a war is still waging or people who are genuinely seeking help. I mean, there is a mass movement of people across the globe at the moment because of conflict, because of war, because of starvation, because of climate change. And Ireland is not the only country where we've started to see those increase in numbers. So, I mean, we, we have gone from a situation where around 3,000 people a year would seek international protection. And in a very short space of time, that has gone from 15,000 last year, we'll probably have about 13,000 this year, as well as close to 100,000 people seeking protection from Ukraine. So that is a massive number of people. At the same time, it represents just a fraction of our overall population. And I think for the most part, people understand why people are coming here. People understand why people are seeking international protection, that they need shelter, that they need refuge, that the vast majority of people coming here want to work. They want to contribute. Uh, Those who are coming from Ukraine are able to work immediately. Those who are seeking international protection, when they go through the system after six months, they're able to work. And to be honest, what we see from most people, and, and this is where there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of mistruths being put out there, People who come to this country, they work, they want to contribute, they want to build a better life for themselves. And this narrative that those who are seeking international protection are dangerous, that they're you know, more likely to commit crimes, it's simply not true. Mm-hmm. It's not founded in any fact. And this is the type of information that's been spread among communities that we as a government, I absolutely accept we need to counter that. We need to be as clear as possible saying we have a rules-based system. People come in, they go through a process. If there is you know, if they're entitled to stay here, they stay. If they're not, they leave. Okay. But this narrative that everybody coming in is here to create problems, it's simply not true and we have to dispel that myth. Do you not accept that there is legitimate concern amongst a sizable number of people who listen to the news and hear stories of people who are seeking international protection in this country, who arrive here and are told by the government, I'm sorry, we've no accommodation for you. There is a small stipend, go to a local charity and they end up getting a sleeping bag, sleeping in a tent on the street. That's unacceptable. Well, this accommodation that was burnt down over the weekend would have significantly uh, supported 70 people. Yeah, but that aside, we still have a much bigger problem than 70 people, Minister. Well, I think the fact that we have responded to over 100,000 people in the last two years just shows the huge amount of effort that has gone into protecting people and giving people a roof over their head when they arrive. We've never shied away from the fact that this is an unprecedented number of people to try and support in such a short space of time. Um, I do believe, and, and we've all said that, that we are too reliant on the private sector, and that's why we're looking to develop our own Uh, reception centres so that people who come in uh, who are seeking protection, particularly those coming from Ukraine as well, that they would be essentially given accommodation but then moved on in a much quicker way. Um, But we are dealing with an unprecedented situation with significant numbers at the same time that doesn't give anybody the right to burn down a building Mm -hmm. because they say they have concerns. I, I am very willing to and, and you know we all want to engage with communities to make sure that anyone who comes that they can integrate that children can go to school that there's enough services and supports for everybody you know we're, we're in full employment so there's employment there where people need to work that we can help people get to work but again that doesn't you know peaceful protests and concerns do not and should not result 
in a building being set okay. on fire. And we have to draw a very, very clear line mm-hmm. here and we have to be very clear about that. And I think the vast majority, to your very first question, the vast majority of people see that line. They don't think what happened on Saturday was acceptable and they are very welcoming of those who are coming into this country. And that is the conversation we need to build on. Okay. And that is the, the way we need to engage. Are we close to having a conversation that we should consider the possibility of closing the door in this country because we can't deal with the numbers of people who are coming here? Or would we ever countenance that notion? Well, there are two things here. So firstly, we have international obligations. If somebody arrives in our country and says that they are a person who has come from a conflict zone, that they are potentially at risk of being persecuted if they go home, we have an obligation to process them to see whether they need international protection. The figure that we had from last year, even though it was the largest number of people seeking protection that I've known, it's still 0.02%, I think, of our overall population. This is not, this idea that Ireland is full, it's 0.02% of our overall population. So absolutely, we should be able to protect people and have a system in place whereby those who need our help, they can get it. When it comes to Ukraine, again, you know, a a lot of people have actually um, moved out of accommodation that they've been provided. There are a significant number of people who are working. You have quite a high number of people who have actually gone back home as well. So there's a constant movement of people and that allows for more people who need our support to come in. So I, I don't accept this idea that Ireland is full. I absolutely know and we all know that we need to stop relying insofar as we are on the private sector but that has come about from absolute necessity because of the numbers but I think um, the way in which my own department has been able to respond in those increased numbers um, there are two things so firstly if people are coming from a safe country uh, and when I say safe country I mean a country that is not deemed to have the issues that Mm -hmm. people should be coming here seeking international protection they are being turned around in less than three months and they're being given their first decision. Uh, and deportations are happening and people are being asked to leave. And it, it's not nice sometimes, but it has to happen because we have a rules-based system. The second is those who are seeking international protection that are not from safe countries. We've gone from a scenario where it might have taken four or five or six years to just over one year. And that's even with all of the pressures. So we're building up our systems, we're building okay. up our teams, we're turning around our times quickly because those who need it should get it. And those who don't, They should get their decision quickly and they should be asked to leave. Let me ask you then about the decision by government to reduce the level of supports for Ukrainian refugees coming into Ireland. Do you think that was a prudent decision? Is it a decision that shouldn't have happened or should it have happened a lot sooner? Well, obviously I'm part of government. Um, I was part of that decision and I think it was the right decision. Um, Just just on that, sorry Minister, why do you think it was the right decision? Uh, because I think we need to look at the overall picture and what it is that we're providing. Um, we have a significant number of people coming from Ukraine um, where they're receiving accommodation, but also financial support and the obligation that has been placed upon us through the Temporary Protection Directive. That's the mechanism by which they come in. Um, it does not require perhaps that level of support. So what we're saying now is when you come to Ireland... So we were over generous in our support initially? Well, I, I think it was appropriate given the, the, the trauma and the challenges that people were facing. Um, it was the response that we decided at the time, but we have a significant number of people still coming here. We've reflected on what other countries and other jurisdictions are offering. Um, we know that 
accommodation is a challenge for us at the moment. So what we've said is if you come into this country, um, once this legislation is passed, you will receive accommodation for 90 days with a lower rate of payment. But once you leave that accommodation after 90 days, you will go back up to uh, what is the normal job seekers or the, the social welfare payment here to make sure that people are supported either one way. So if it's not the accommodation, then they're provided with the funding. To date, people were being provided with accommodation and the funding. Uh, and potentially, you know, depending on where they were staying, they were being given meals uh, and other supports as well. So we, we have to review, I think, at this stage, because we're now a year and a half. But, into but, this but for them, it's, it's then into a cycle of trying to find accommodation which is very difficult to do under the present circumstances. So what do they do, end up in a tent, end up in a a temporary accommodation? What we've seen in other countries, um, firstly I suppose Ukrainian people are potentially coming with more resources than you would have people with international protection applicants. Um, So they have uh, potentially a greater amount of financial support themselves uh, and they will still be receiving financial support there is a greater community here in Ireland, first and foremost, a larger number um, for people to be able to link in with. They also have an ability to travel as well. So those seeking international protection um, are here and most likely will stay here, whereas Ukrainians can travel throughout Europe as well if they so wish or if that's something that is necessary. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to see a situation where anybody is left without accommodation and even the numbers that uh, have not been given accommodation to international protection in recent times um, they have been supported in other ways and through other organisations. So, you know, th- there is a huge pressure on the system here. Nobody is denying that. And it is simply because of the the various factors that have happened at a European and an international level in a very short space of time. But I think as a government, we have responded and we are absolutely committed to continuing that response in the most effective way, but also in the way that we feel is most reasonable. Um, and whether that's international protection okay. applicants, those seeking uh, a different type of protection, but all the, all the same, um, as important as those coming from Ukraine. Now, the, these haven't been copper fastened or enshrined in law yet. We're anticipating that's going to be, what, early next year. So is there a concern that we will see an influx of Ukrainian refugees coming to this country to avail of the current uh, supports that are available prior to the change in this law when they'll be reduced. Is that a concern? It's been expressed and it has been since this decision was made. That, that's always a possibility. Uh, and when you make any uh, decision like that, it's obviously a very public decision um, and it will take time to enact legislation. The Dáil uh, concluded last week we will be returning in early January, um, but this legislation will have to pass. Um, it's based on legislation in itself so it can't be just signed by minister it can't be just changed by government without that um now we've seen a continuous and i think a, a constant number of people coming from ukraine um over the last number of months so i i you know i, I can't imagine that will change significantly and um, but obviously it's something that we are aware of and very conscious of but you know, we have to change it via legislation. It's important that we let people know exa- as well what we're doing. Uh, the objective here is that people know when they're coming, this is what they will get. We're not trying to, to spring this on anybody or, or to, to do it without people knowing. This is to say very clearly, if you come to Ireland after this date, once the legislation is passed, these are the supports that you will get. This is the level of support. This is how long you will have accommodation for uh, and to make that very mm-hmm. clear. For so I think it was only right that we made that clear. But yes, 
it does potentially mean that people will come over Christmas, but I think people will come over Christmas anyway. I think if you look at what is happening in Ukraine, there is a potential for an offensive as well to happen uh, again in the cold winter months, and that in itself will bring about challenges for people uh, who, who need help and who are seeking help again. Very good, Minister. If I could just turn my attention now to policing and the changes that most people who have visited Dublin City uh, Centre over the past number of weeks post the riots end of, of November. They'll be taken by the number of Gardaí on the beat and one feels very safe walking around the, uh, Dublin City. I mean, I'm, I've, I'm there almost every day Every time you turn, you see a guard and that's great, but it's not sustainable. What is the long-term plan post-Christmas when it comes to policing the capital? Well, maybe just to that point to reassure people um, that over the Christmas period, there will be that sustained high visible presence uh, right across the city centre and surrounding areas, but also in local towns and villages and and rural towns and villages as well, because there's a perception perhaps that all the Gardaí are in Dublin city centre, which... Uh, it's not the case. There will be that strong presence over Christmas. What I want, and I think what everybody wants, and the Commissioner and, and the Gardaí, is to continue that strong presence. Um, of course, the levels that is at at the moment, that will have to be reviewed. Uh, we need to look at where our resources are, um, where that visibility can be maintained. So something as simple as making sure that some of the units that currently would not necessarily wear their uniforms that they are wearing uniforms going about the course of their duty and that they are more visible because it is often that visibility and that presence on the ground that reassures mm. people and obviously deters others from committing crimes. So the policing plan itself for the city, that will be reviewed towards the end of the year. Uh, of course, you'll have seen on Friday just gone, we had 151 new graduates came out of Temple Moore. Uh, a significant number of them came to Dublin, but others across the country. Uh, in our own county in Mead, we had, uh, I think, eight that are coming down to, to, to Mead. Um, and you will start to see those numbers then filtering across the country. Ju- so just the more Gardaí we have, yeah. the greater presence we can continue to have, not just in Dublin, but right across the country. Just on that point, and can I just draw your attention to the Commission on the Future of Policing in Ireland, where it stated, this was Kathleen O'Toole, the chair, stated that policing outcomes in Ireland will not improve simply by adding more police or appointing new police leaders. There's far more to this than just putting boots on the ground. And the sweeping reforms and changes that the Commission called for don't seem to be implemented by government. And this is going back to the back end of 2016 this was established. So they actually are. And this is where I would disagree. So, so many of the changes that we hear being talked about uh, the move to an online system, the move um, to a response system that is now looking at all of the information and data. This is all new. So until recently, uh, you have a situation where Gardaí would be dealing with very serious criminal cases using notebooks, pens uh, and a very paper-based system, whereas now you have a new online system which uh, alerts Gardaí to crimes when they come in through uh, the phone lines. They're then dispatched in a manner which is looking at um, their prominence and and their severity. Uh, The details are all taken and everything is put into an online system, which was not the case before. So this means that we now have a clearer picture of what's happening, what types of crimes are being committed, how Gardaí are working, and there's a more uniform response than we've had before. Separate to that, then, you have the development of new units. So we have more specialist teams. And this in itself, I suppose, has created maybe a perception that we don't have as many Gardaí um, as before, but you have teams now working in domestic and sexual violence that are specialised. You have teams working in cybercrime uh, and areas where you wouldn't have had teams before. So we have identified 
areas where there are concerns. We have teams working on uh, international crime, working on uh, drug seizures and other areas as well. And these are all reforms uh-huh. that are going to be hugely beneficial. And, and no one disputes that, Minister, or, Minister, and they are all lo- laudable changes. However, it's about perception, and the perception is we do not have enough Gardaí on the beat. We have the rank-and-file members of the GRA who have no confidence in their guard, the Commissioner. We are seeing numbers hemorrhaging out of the force as a result of them looking over the shoulder at GSOC, mental stress, anxiety, bullying. The list is just endless in terms of what we can do in order to assuage the fears and make it an attractive proposition for people to go into to go into the Garda. So to your point, so we need more Gardaí. So we're changing the way in which we police. Change can be challenging and difficult at the same time in the long run. This is the positive uh, way in which we need to police, making sure we use technology, equipment, that we have the data to be able to respond effectively. We still need more Gardaí. We have a growing population and due to the closure of the college because of COVID-19, we had two years where we did not have guards coming through. We should have about 1,000 more than we have now. So irrespective of the changes, we still need more Gardaí to make sure that we populate those specialist teams, that we have a visible presence, and above all, that our community policing teams, which people really respond to, that they are strengthened and that they are visible on the ground. Separate to that, yes, we have an increase in those who have left this year compared to other years, but it's still about 1%. And if you look at other police forces across the world, they are experiencing the exact same problems, only at a much higher percentage, about 3% of their workforce. And in responding to that, what we are doing, and the commissioner and his team, they're conducting exit interviews to any person who's left, that they haven't retired, but they've left because they want to. Why are you leaving? What is there more we can be doing to support you, to work with you, to help you? I mean, in this year's budget alone, there was €6 million Euro that I allocated to go back into further mental health support or additional support for Gardaí to make sure they have technology and equipment that they need to help them do their job better. So there's always a learning here, but there's always mm-hmm. something that I can be okay. doing that I'm trying to do to, to support Gardaí in their work. And so every time I go to a Garda station, I'll take the time to ask Gardaí, what do you need? What more can I be doing? And some of the some of the measures that I've put in place in recent years, some of the funding has come directly from listening to members, uh, from them telling me this is what we need more of. Very good. OK, Minister, we must leave there. Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, thank you for talking to us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. If you want to contact us, we're on 0861800658 or you can email michael at lmfm.ie. We're being encouraged to be kind to ourselves this Christmas. New research has revealed Irish people are more likely to treat loved ones experiencing mental health difficulties with compassion than themselves. An annual attitude survey for St. Patrick's Mental Health Services found 22% of us would consider seeking treatment for ourselves a sign of weakness compared to just 9% if others did. CEO Paul Gilligan says self-compassion is the key this Christmas and Paul joins us online this morning. Paul, good morning. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Can you talk to me first of all about self-stigma? What is that? Self-stigma is effectively where somebody integrates the stigma that exists in society around, say, mental health issues into themselves. So it becomes part of their belief system. And it's quite understandable. OK, it's sorry, not, Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm lost already off the bat here. Give that to me as if I'm a four-year-old. So, in other words, within Irish society, there's lots of views about mental health that are not positive. We have a long history of, uh, I suppose, uh, treating people with mental health difficulties in a way that would be less than we'd accept now. Mm -hmm. What happens is people integrate that into their own belief systems. 
So people start to believe that these things are accurate. And when they experience a mental health difficulty themselves, then these beliefs start to come to the fore. And so they start to feel, I'm, I'm letting myself down, I'm letting other people down. This is a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. And these are belief systems we all have that we might not really realise we have until we're confronted with a mental health issue. Not one to be trite or unsympathetic here, Paul, but whatever happened to resilience when it comes to mental health? And I don't doubt for one second that people who are experiencing difficulties in their lives and long-term difficulties require help. But where is the line between resilience and requiring health, mental health intervention? Yeah, so so that, that's an interesting conversation because it's not... It's, it, there are a number of people who would take a view that says, look, you know... Is this really a mental health issue? Um, is this not just trying to deal with life's ups and downs, etc.? But but there's a couple of things. First of all, mental health is 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 a, is a reality. Those with mental health difficulties are experiencing situations where they really um, find it very hard to live a, a, a fulfilling, let's call it normal life. Okay, so do the things that normally people would do: get to work. Uh, engage with family in, a, in an appropriate way. And and then lastly, sometimes resilience is actually about being able to seek help. So we, we misinterpret resilience often. We say, well, hold on a minute. Resilience is about coping on your own. It's not. Resilience is about saying, these are the things I need to be able to deal with my mental health. And inevitably, people who seek treatment for mental health difficulties are demonstrating massive resilience. Because what they're doing is they're demonstrating that A, they have the courage to go and seek help, two, that they have the courage to talk about their mental health, and three, that they realise, actually, I can't do this without some sort of help. Now, sorry, that can be anything. That can be talking to a friend. That can be uh, drawing off a family member. Or it can be seeking formal mm-hmm. support, getting involved with services, etc. So often a sign of resilience is actually those people who reach out to seek help from, from services. Difficulties with mental health, is it a catch-all for, at times, superficial problems that resilience could deal with? And we tend to run to the solution rather than dealing with the problem in a matter-of-fact way and letting it play out to see where it goes. I say that in the context particularly of younger people today, Paul. They seem to be less resilient. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And again, it's, it's an interesting point of view. But, but the fact is, nobody wants to um, have a difficulty or declare that they have a difficulty that they feel they need help with. Nobody wants that. People, people want to be able to deal with the, and, and are able to deal most often with the day-to-day. And this concept that young people are not capable of dealing with issues or they, they lack resilience is absolute rubbish. They have been through... The, one of the worst periods that we've seen in, in, in right across the world, the COVID-19 pandemic. They have, most young people have come through that. They have demonstrated their resilience. They've demonstrated their psychological strength. So I think sometimes we, there's myths out there that says, you know, young people don't have the same resilience as we had. That's, that's not the case. In fact, the fact is that they're more confident about discussing their mental health. They're able to know when they need support. And, and absolutely... Very few times, in my experience, do people seek help and support where they don't need it, where the thing could have got resolved or where they would have got through the, 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 the issue without that help. The, the, the real test of resilience, the real test of 
of our awareness of mental health is knowing when we need support and seeking that support. And I think that has improved immensely alongside our awareness of mental health, alongside our acceptance of those with mental health difficulties. We also have improved immensely in terms of our ability to know when to seek help and when that that time is appropriate. Okay, well, let me therefore ask you the position adopted when certainly I was was growing up and I'm I'm in my 50s now when you are having problems was the case. Yeah, get on with it. Give yourself a kick up the backside. You'll be grand. Keep her going. We shouldn't be going down that road today. Is that what you're saying? We should be listening intently. It did us no harm, <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. Well, well, it's the same argument about being physically punished in school. It's the exact same argument. It did us no yeah. harm. We're all in our 50s. We went to school. We got a bit of a bit from the teacher. Sure, it did us no harm. There was a bit of bullying going on, but sure, it did us no harm. Of course, it did us harm. It certainly didn't, us any, didn't, didn't do us any good. The fact is that that we, we, we have improved immensely around our understanding of what we should and shouldn't have to experience. Of course, there is nothing you can do. Everybody will experience bad things in their life. Every, nobody has a right to a mentally healthy life because that's not possible. Of course, there are going to be things that happen that that, that make our lives difficult. But they make us stronger when we're, when we're dealing with difficulties and situations that we're not used to and we have to get over them using our own fortitude or whatever mental well-being and we get over them it makes us stronger it makes us be able to deal with more difficult well, situations as we get older in life and they become more difficult as we get older and if we lose the ability to deal with them at a young age then we're kind of snookered yeah i mean one of the arguments that i remember hearing somebody make around children who've been abused where they said a child who's abused doesn't necessarily have have have, have issues when they when they grow older as a result of that abuse but it certainly doesn't help because they use all of their energy and their and, and, and their resilience to overcome what they should never have experienced. And the same no, no, Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, but I, I just have to clarify here. I'm not talking specifically about serious situations like that. I'm just talking about run-of-the-mill no, stuff no, that I'm, we would I'm, have went through. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, and, I'm, and, I'm not, and I'm not suggesting otherwise, but the same argument applies. There's absolutely... There, 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 we, we see with young people today, we see, in fact, with adults today that they're capable, they have the level of understanding, which is fantastic. They have the level of understanding to know where a mental health issue or a mental health difficulty is a difficulty as opposed to a, a, an issue that has arisen that will, will pass or that needs to get resolved. We, 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 have, we have done an awful lot of work in schools. We've done an awful lot of work in public education to help people understand that. So there are very there, there, there's no evidence really supporting the fact that people a lack resilience or b okay. are seeking help for things that they don't need help for. I think that 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 I think sometimes different generations who have come through periods where there was no help, where there was no awareness, where there was little understanding, do look back and say, well, we went through all of that stuff and we were able to cope. But in fact, the question is, is that what we want? And number two. In fact, what we're really saying is not only do you have a right to get support, but be it's the right thing to do and it's the most courageous thing to do. Okay. And sometimes if you look back on, on maybe our generation, you say, well, actually, we, were, we, we weren't prepared to talk about mental health or mental health issues because we were afraid to. Because okay, Paul, Paul, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to cut it there. We're out of time, but thank you for joining us. CEO Paul Gilligan, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Irish parents are being warned of new laws that will ban children from using e-scooters in the new year. The warning comes just weeks before Christmas. Weeks? A week? Are we a week even from Christmas?
Yeah, it's next week. Wow. Uh, the Road Safety Authority is warning parents that uh, new laws will prevent children under 16 from using e-scooters. Green Party MEP Kieran Cuff joins us morning. Kieran, good morning to you. These are nothing more than a blight on society that should be banned and they are a danger. That's what I'm hearing every time the whole notion of e-scooters comes up. Would you agree with it? I take a somewhat more nuanced approach. Um, uh, I think certainly uh, giving a, a young child an e-scooter on Christmas Day is probably not a good idea. Uh, but I do think that they have e-scooters have a role to place in the transport spectrum, uh, and particularly for short city journeys. Uh, I think they can have a use, uh, and it's much better for the environment to have somebody on a small e-scooter than trundling around in an SUV. Uh, so a somewhat more nuanced uh, approach than that. But look, we do need rules around them. Uh, we do need to make sure that there aren't uh, kids whizzing around at high speeds. Uh, we want to make sure that. The speeds are restricted to under 25 or even under 20 kilometres per hour. And the advice from from the European Transport Safety Council is think carefully before you buy one. Make sure that they have large wheels, not the tiny wheels that get stuck in a in a crack in the ground. Uh, make sure that they're well built uh, and think twice before giving them uh, uh, to somebody as a gift okay, for Christmas. It's, it's fair to say though, Kieran, we're behind the ball when it comes to putting mechanisms in place, legislation, rules, regulations, because this crept on us, upon us very quickly and it's now it's overtaken us and we're, pay, we're you know, we're, we're trying to win back this narrative. I, I think that's a fair analysis, but look, I think it takes time to put in place the rules and regulations that are needed. Uh, the Eamon Ryan put out draft regulations. They had to go through public consultation um, and they're about to kick in. I think the last time I looked, it was at some stage before the end of the year. So I think we will see regulations in there uh, and the guards will uh, be duty bound to enforce those regulations. Uh, And I think what we'll see is a kind of a maturing in the market of uh, these high-speed scooters will be taken off people's hands, which is a good thing. uh, But we will certainly be allowing them to be used uh, in certain areas. And I think as well, local authorities have a role to play in providing um, designated parking so that they're not um, uh, left in the middle of the footpath, which can be can be a problem. But, you know, we, we've discussed this a lot in the European Parliament, and uh, I, I was uh, at a debate with a, a colleague from Central Europe, and he said, we've got to stop these things uh, being driven on the footpath, being parked in the middle of the footpath, uh, being weaving uh, in and out of traffic. And I said to him, that's a great idea, but could we apply that to cars as well? So uh, I, I think we certainly need to control the use of vehicles, particularly in urban areas, okay. and we need to make sure that they're used correctly. If I may, um, Kieran, just maybe dwell for a moment on COP28. Uh, we've had time, I suppose, to digest what has come out of that. And in reality, has it been groundbreaking in terms of what it's proposing? And I just say that in the context of we were talking about fossil fuels and a move away from it as opposed to a phasing out of it. So it didn't really achieve anything anything around fossil fuels? Well, I don't think it was ever going to be the magic breakthrough moment that would save the planet. And every year there's a kind of a, an expectation in some quarters that we'll clinch the deal and suddenly we'll wave a magic wand and fossil fuels will be no more. Look, turkeys aren't going to vote for Christmas and having the COP28 held in a petro state was probably not the best of ideas. But look, you have to reach out to them as well. I think the most important decisions, though, that were made at this COP 
was a commitment from all countries to trebling the amount of renewable energy and doubling energy efficiency. Now that sounds a bit complicated but energy efficiency can be the insulation in your attic, it can be the heat pump in your home and the commitments that were given on this I think were really good and a huge step in the right direction. Let me just ask you then about the uh, president of the UN's Climate Change Summit. He heads up, I think, the 12th biggest uh, oil company on the planet, Mr. Al Jabra, as we're talking about here. Was he the right person to, to be president of COP28? Look, I, I, I could think of much better people, uh, but at least he started a dialogue and a discussion uh, amongst these petro states that, that see that the writing is on the wall. They see that they've got to uh, phase down over the next 20 years. Now, some will resist doing that, but I think the actions and the laws that were, that were passing in, in the European Parliament, in Europe, uh, to to uh, increase renewables, to put a tax on high carbon imports from elsewhere around the world. Gradually, we are we are turning the dial uh, on a fossil free future. Uh, and I think when Europe leads, other regions will follow. Uh, and I think it's a success story in Europe. Uh, you you can look at the figures for Ireland, where renewable energy is providing most of our electricity on many days. So that's that's real progress. Okay. And this will only increase uh, as we move towards the end of the decade. It is the decade of change, and we've got to stay on board with this. Very good. We leave it there. Kieran Cuff Green, MEP, thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back. I suppose the next piece I'm just going to talk about goes nicely into the next interview. And I wanted to mention this as a, an ardent and Kilkenny supporter to the backbone. Two great victories yesterday in Camogie. We had Dixborough winning and we also had Brian Hogan's Lachlan Gales. Great win for two Kilkenny teams yesterday. And it brings me on to this. The good news, it just keeps coming for the GAA. Less than 24 hours after JP McManus gifted £32 million to the GAA county boards. There's more Christmas financial cheer for the association. The GAA will be the largest recipients in the Sport Ireland spending package of £6.4 million funded by dormant accounts, which was announced on Friday. Let's talk to Jason Plunkett. He's the newly appointed chair of the Meath County Board and joins us this morning. Jason, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. I suppose it's probably just a little bit too early to get a definitive response to the question where is the million going to be spent? Are you any closer to understanding what way it'll go or has it created a headache for you? Good morning, Alan. Thanks for having me on the show this morning. Uh, I suppose, yeah, we, we were in the office there on Saturday. Myself, the Secretary and Treasurer met up and went through the letter. The letter is clear enough, I suppose. It, it states that the Mee, the Mee County Committee has to uh, distribute the money among the GA, Camogie and Lady Football Clubs within the county. So, at present, our secretary has uh, contacted the LGFA and the Camogie board to find out their total amount of affiliated clubs. And then from there on, we will know what allocation will go to each club. OK, that aside, was there any stipulation to suggest that it should be spent in certain areas? Or is that open to the clubs themselves? Can they spend it on development, on pitch improvements, whatever they want? Is it, is, is, is it a free-for-all in terms of spend? Yeah, well, I suppose the letter says, uh, I suppose a few points there from JP's uh, foundation would be to promote civic responsibility and volunteerism at all levels within the clubs, to advance community welfare, including the relief of those in need and in the reason of youth, age, ill health and disability, advance community development, including rural and urban regeneration, 
promote the physical and mental health well-being of all the members and players at all age groups with with the purpose of preventing sickness, disease and human, suffer, oh. human suffering. Promote the Irish language, music, song and dance. Oh. And insist with the integration of those who are disadvantaged and the promotion of their full participation in society. Okay, so, so it, it's fairly broad in terms of its remit, yeah. but is it possible at this point to try and understand what impact it will have long term? Long term? Mm-hmm. Long term, I think it will, it will have will have significant uh, bearing on all the clubs. Like I, I, I suppose chair of safety and facilities within the county and province and I know the clubs are are in the middle of uh, of getting ready for sports capital there, and look, this is going to be huge then because facilities is number one for most clubs, and they're all trying to just get to the next level. We need we're, we have to increase our uh, our facilities to cater for the growth in the ladies and the men's uh, game. Is it more, though, about fostering talent, recognising that, and I mean, I, I don't, don't take this the wrong way, but there yeah. seems to be a, a, a deficit of what would be considered serious talent under 20 and under 21 in Meath in terms of football at the moment, and I think Colm O'Rourke probably alluded to that himself a, a number of weeks ago. If we don't have the talent, the money itself won't bring that along, will it? No, I don't think so. But look, there is uh, there is a lot of work going in under that. Like we have a, a football development, and we have a hurling development committee. I suppose they have they they've put in a lot of structures here at underage meet, and look, the coaches are being upskilled all the time. Look, we probably haven't got the marquee players that we had a few years ago. But look, I've no doubt uh, from going to presentation there last week there of the the meet one under the minor B All Ireland. And like there's there's hurlers coming through as was we had our All Ireland winning minor team a few years ago, and uh, I, I think the structures are there to to bring that place. But facilities wise for club, we need our strength and conditioning, we need our gyms in our club because that's been that's been lacking in our clubs for the last few years. There is clubs to have it, but we need to bring the players at a strength and conditioning level and as well as a coaching level. I think I think the structures are in place in Mead now to develop that in the next couple of years. Has there been a danger in, in me that we tended to benchmark things against the Sean Boylan era and the great successes under his um, stewardship? Should we forget about that, think about the future and build towards the future? And how long will it take us to get to a point where we'll be celebrating the great victories that Boylan did back in those days? I think that uh, look, we have to remember where we came from, and that's even family and you know everyone remembers where they came from. Mead, Mead have a, a proud tradition and a proud history, and we can't forget that. And look, that's something that drives the player on. If you, if anyone that would have went out development squads, you go into down to the dressing room, and you would see the the pictures and the images along the dressing room there of showing all them successes. Look, and any uh, young young man that walks in there. I mean, if he can't get inspiration from the from our past successes, I mean, I mean that's what drives you on. You want mm. to emulate your 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 heroes. And how do you see the future of of the footballers going in County Mead? Are we at a point? Do we call it the pivot point that it can go one way or the other? No, I think we have a very very talented bunch there with Colum at the minute. Colum has surrounded himself with some good lads. He's addition this year with Barry Horgan. He has Stephen Bray. He has Barry Callan. But I mean. I, I think he has a great team around him and look, Colm has won stuff so he knows and he'll drive these lads on but he, he has a very talented bunch there and in, in underneath him we have Cahill Brick and Conor Donovan mm. lads like that doing great work to drive on the next the next bunch to keep the, keep the flow going. 
Talk to me a little bit, just going back to to the JP funding. Um, It came as a bolt out of the blue for you. Um, Will we tend to look at it and say, well, you know, if we get a little bit more of this, we could drive things on uh, more than we have been able to in the past? And would we hope to get more out of them? Oh, I don't. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't like to call. I've met JP. I've met JP. Well, if JP handed you a check next year for another million, you wouldn't be turning it down, would you? You would not be turning it down. But look, I think. I think he he has a. He probably has a limit more than anyone else. But look, JP is a nice man. Uh, I spoke to him a couple of times. I had the pleasure of speaking to him in our car, and look, we thanked him. Uh, we thanked him very much for his donation the last time to the club. Look, and he 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 remembers everything because. We sent her, Maria Delaney was secretary of our county board that time and she sent a letter down and we, we sent down a couple of tickets for the All-Ireland final that time and uh, look, he didn't he didn't forget it, he, he mentioned it and he thanked us, he thanked us. Do you have a view about the amount of money that's being pumped into Limerick and a lot of people are saying the success is built off the back of JP's money, that's why the hurlers are so good. Now, let me preface that by saying they have some phenomenal hurlers but it, it's not a bad idea to have a man like JP's money behind you. No, I think it's the Limerick success is pure on talent. I mean, they went they went long and long and long without without them. They probably had a they probably had a, an ebb that they were at, and they could they just these marquee players came along. But no, look, it's money helps, but it it doesn't it doesn't win you anything. Okay, we leave it there. Um, just one other question, and I don't want to politicise yeah. this in in any shape or form, but do you have a problem that, you know, JP has an arrangement where he doesn't necessarily pay all his tax in this country? And that perhaps no, you're I getting don't. money that's not, that should have been gone going to the Exchequer, which would have gone to roads, sewage, whatever, local authorities? you have a problem with that? No, I, no, I don't. Look at the... Uh it's it's not for me to comment on that. I suppose JP has other businesses in in Ireland that he he pays tax on, and look, that's a matter for the revenue. If if he's you know to deal with, it's nothing to do with us really. We're just thankful that that you got the million. The <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jason, thanks so much for joining us. Jason Plunkett is the newly appointed chair of me, the county board, joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM. You can text or WhatsApp us on 086-1800-658 or you can call us 0419-83000, michael at lmfm.ie if you want to email us. Recent figures published by the Department of Housing show a record total number of 13,179 people officially homeless in October 2023. That's an increase of 352 compared to the previous month and an annual increase of 16% compared to October 2022. The new figures show that the number of children homeless in Ireland has reached yet another record high with 3,991 children currently without a place to call home, an annual increase of 15%. Meath Sinn Féin uh, will hold a sleep out to highlight the issue in the run-up to Christmas and Darren O'Rourke Sinn Féin TD for Meath West joins us. Deputy, good morning, thanks for joining us. Um, We don't really need Sinn Féin to have a sleep out to tell us that there's a problem here. There is a problem, we're looking for a solution surely. Oh, absolutely. We're, we're looking for a, a solution, but I think it's uh, very important that uh, the issue is highlighted and more than that, protested. Uh, and I feel that's what, what we're doing tonight um, in Kells and Navan and Ashburn and Trim. Um, as the main opposition party, we have to use uh, every forum platform that we have to um, call out government failures and 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 also to say that 4000 
children homeless at Christmas is not normal. It's never normal. It shouldn't be considered as such. Mm. Um, and it is uh, a direct result of, of government policy. Um, there are solutions there. We have put them forward time and again. Government have opposed them. So tonight, um, we're taking this as a, 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 a taking it literally to the streets uh, to highlight this issue, to protest this issue, and also to to raise money for okay. Vincent and Paul their Wonder of Christmas campaign. Okay, Darren, if we can just park just for a moment the political point scoring here and look at the reality of the situation, and it is this that the government have been faced with the perfect storm when it comes to accommodation. I do accept that there was an accommodation crisis prior to what was going on in Ukraine and people seeking international protection in this country. It has reached a point where it is becoming increasingly difficult to solve the problem. That on top of what is going on with children and families, and we see statistics only last week of more elderly people facing homelessness. It is a mess, a perfect storm, and it is, it's what Donald Rumsfeld called the unknown unknowns. It has happened, and we have to deal with it in some shape or form. So, uh, and, and the first thing I'd say in relation to, you can call it political point score, and I've, I've heard other uh, political opponents call out this type of action from Sinn Féin, every type of action, whether it's a, a direct protest, whether it's motions in the doll. One thing I would say in relation to that, we couldn't have a protest about 4,000 children been homeless this Christmas if there wasn't 4,000 children homeless this Christmas. And that is on the government. Um, I would say in relation, in relation to it, um, this is a direct result of government policy, of their failures to deliver social and affordable housing in, in the first instance. That's nothing to do with the influx of people. You guys are fairly good at, 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 at protesting against them and, and shouting down the, the whole notion of building. It's not in my back garden. We've seen it happen oh. in Dublin. Well, well, well. I, I think if you if you look at it in County Mead and elsewhere, I'm very happy to stand over Sinn Féin's track record in terms of supporting housing delivery. Um, I, I don't think the same can be said of our political opponents. And if you look at the, the media in, in recent weeks, um, you can see that the type of, of opposition and, and the political quarters it's coming from, particularly in County Mead. Um, so I'm quite happy to stand over Sinn Féin's record in terms of supporting the, the, the right type of housing in the right place and the right model. The issue for government here is they are completely responsible for delivering it. They're responsible for setting the policy setting the targets and delivering on them. And they're failing on absolutely every measure. So so look at social and affordable housing. And we don't have to look outside County Mead in terms of, of their delivery. I, I look at my own area in terms of, of Ashbourne. Um, it, incredibly slow at delivering social, social housing. Um, projects that are promised in 2016 aren't going to be delivered until 2024. The red tape, the bureaucracy, the failure to deliver. You look at affordable housing. The government have literally taken 70% of their affordable housing budget away from affordable housing because they know their own scheme doesn't work. The local authority are building an affo- a, a social housing scheme in Ashbourne across the political spectrum, uh, ironically, including mm. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are supporting the proposal of delivering affordable housing there. But the scheme is so bad that the, the local authority are saying 
we, we can't deliver a portable Okay, a Darren, let's, let's just deal with the here and now in relation to the number of children who are going to be homeless. And homeless, in terms of a definition, is not having a place to call their own. Now, it's not that they're on the street. I've no doubt there may be some children on the street, but they will have some form of shelter. But nonetheless, that's not good enough for a child. So what can you do in the short term to ameliorate the trauma that children are going under because they are not in their own home? What can be done? Think, Nothing in reality. Well, well, I think you know a, a difficulty is our starting point, and is the is the, is the failure over an extended period. And I can go back, you know, ten years. Uh, Sinn Féin took a, a similar initiative to this and, and had a sleep out in twenty fourteen. There were eight hundred children homeless at that stage. There were um, in the region of of three thousand uh, people homeless overall. Now you know there's over 13,000 people homeless and 4,000 children. So it's been very significant growth over the period of Fine Gael. Yeah, but, but Darren, we get that. The question I put to you is, what do you do now? You so, have, you're so, having a sleep so, out to highlight the problem. Yeah. Tell me the solution to the so, problem right now. So, for example, we could uh, prevent people from entering homelessness um, by supporting Sinn Féin's uh, ban, ban on evictions uh, for, for the winter period up until the end of March. Government refused to do that. We could uh, make rents affordable uh, so, so people weren't being forced out of, of uh, uh, private rental accommodation. Yeah, but you're interfering with market forces there, Darren, when it comes to landlords. I mean, you can't dictate to landlords to say to them, no, you can do this or you can't do that with a property that they have bought off their own hard work. You're dictating policy and interfering we- with market forces. Well, well, let's let's be clear. Look at what what government policy has done in terms of delivering record homelessness. We could also go beyond what government are doing in terms of deliver. First of all, setting ambitious targets. We need to go beyond the government's targets. So, for example, Sinn Féin's proposal for social and affordable uh, uh, units are. 7,300 additional units on top of what government uh, are committed to, but also fundamentally reforming the delivery model. So using new building technologies, uh, reducing the red tape, significantly increased delivery of, of vacant and derelict. Well, the derelict government units. is overhauled on board Planola, so things should speed up pretty rapidly. And you, you have to accept that there was blockages there within, uh, within on board Planola. So, so I'll tell you what I accept. Under this government, house prices have increased by 28%. Rents have increased by 25%. Homelessness, including child homelessness, has increased by 47%. Market forces. They, 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 they set targets year on year, including this year, for example. They've set targets of delivering 9,100 new social units. At the end of Q3, they have delivered... 2,642. In terms of their affordable units, they set a target this year of 3,500 units. At the end of Q3, they have delivered 262. That's 262 out of 3,500. So if you're not delivering the units, well then people will have nowhere to go and they will be forced into to homelessness. If you don't, if, if you don't prevent homelessness by uh, protect by banning evictions for for, for no fault evictions, you increase the number. So, so there's a suite of policy yeah. measures. Let's let's you, so, let's just bring so a degree of no. Just just let me bring a degree of honesty into this. In reality, if Sinn Fein in the morning were to take power and be the uh, the, the the game player, the power broker in government. You would not have this problem solved in a year. You wouldn't have it solved in two years. 
maybe not even three years down. So let's be honest here. It is a huge problem. It is a huge problem of the government's making. What we will never, start, and, and this is the truth. So, so your point there, Alan, and I appreciate your playing devil's advocate in relation to this. But the truth of it is, we have literally a lifetime of proof that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will not solve this homelessness crisis, this housing crisis. They cause the thing, and their policies are sustaining. We, we have a lifetime of proof of that. And you are the panacea. But you still are not able to tell me here this morning when we will reach a point, if you were in power and you had as much money or whatever to throw at housing, when the problem would be solved. I have have spelled it out in terms of the progress we would make in relation to this. I have said next year we would put in 21,000, we would deliver 21,000 social and affordable units. That is 7,300 on on top of what the government have done. We would reform and ensure that the tenant and city scheme works, an additional 700 units for that. We would go beyond what the government have done in terms of investing in women's refuges places, so ensuring that people who are the, the victims of domestic violence okay. have a place to go. L- let so, me so just all of that. All of that is reducing homelessness. It's preventing homelessness. It's a suite of measures that Sinn Féin time and again have put okay. before... And, 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 yeah, and we've, we've heard that down. But before I let you go, in 30 seconds, give me your view in relation to what the government introduced around Ukrainian refugees coming to Ireland, cutting their accommodation to 90 days and then you're out on the street. Is that acceptable to you? Or is it acceptable that we see people seeking international protection living in tents on the street? What are you going to do about that? Well, well, well that's not acceptable to see people living on on the uh, on in tents on on the street. I think that there was a need to um, address this social welfare package to bring us in line with with other European uh, countries. I think that's that's a, sens- a sensible move because we saw a significant amount of, of secondary movements. But ultimately, here, if if uh, essentially what we're saying to people is after ninety days, um, you're you're on your own and leaving it up to the private rented market. Well, we know where the private rented market is. We, we In Mead, we've had 12.5% year-on-year increase in, in, in terms of rental rates. We know there are properties available. That is just going to add to okay. the problem that we have in terms of... Darren... Of and what's the solution in relation to it? Delivering social and affordable... Okay, Darren, I'm out of time, but, but I'm conscious of why we came to, to, to talk this morning, and that was over the sleep out. When is the sleep out? The sleep out is tonight, starting from nine o'clock on uh, out uh, through the night into tomorrow morning. It's in Navan, in Kells, in Ashbourne, and Trim. We encourage people to support it. We encourage people to donate to St Vincent de Paul at svp.ie and to recognise that four thousand children homeless at Christmas is not normal and it can be solved, it can be addressed, and it's a direct result of government policy and it won't change until we okay. change government. Deputy Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD from Mead West. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, welcome back to the programme. An Irish woman whose two young children were abducted by their Egyptian father while on holiday in Cairo is living a mother's hell since they were taken against her wishes almost two years ago. Maddie Kelly, 37, from Dundalk, had had no contact with her two sons since their father refused to let them come home to Ireland after a family holiday turned into a nightmare. Mandy Kelly joins us uh, for more on this story uh, this morning. Mandy, good morning to you. Thank you for joining us this morning. 
I just want to try and compress this into some sort of context and go to Dubai where you met your husband, you got married, you moved to Ireland, you had children, and then things fundamentally changed. Tell me at what point things changed and what precipitated the father taking the children against your wishes to Egypt. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, to be honest with you, as you can imagine, I've had many sleepless nights mm-hmm. thinking about all of this. And um, the only thing that I can come up with, and um, I know many survivors of coercive control and domestic violence will say that a lot of times um, uh, these abusers, once they observe that uh, their partners are becoming independent, um, for example, I had purchased the family home the year before that uh, we we travelled and um, I was... um, getting on quite well in my in my job as well that he may have become quite fearful that I may have um, been gaining a lot more control and that um, he could have been fearful that I was observing some of his behaviour and that I might um, uh, decide to leave the marriage. But there was nothing that suggested things were going awry at that point. Is this just with the benefit absolutely, of hindsight? Absolutely not. And absolutely okay. not. So it all happened pretty quickly, as I understand it from reading this particular story, that one moment things were fine and the next minute, where the hell are my children? Yes, exactly. Like as in, we went to Cairo for two weeks. We were supposed to return to Ireland on, the, on March 12th. And on March 11th, my whole life turned upside down. Um, he um, basically wanted me to go uh, for coffee with him but I know now that he basically was wanting me to put me in a position where he was cornering me into reacting in public in Cairo and um, ultimately you know, putting me in a situation that I could have um, got myself into a lot of trouble. Now there was a story about you being locked in an apartment to ensure yes. that you couldn't intervene in any shape or form. Tell me about that. It was incredibly frightening. I can't even elaborate how frightening it was because obviously I had called the Irish Consulate in Cairo and the Department of Foreign Affairs here in Ireland and um, nobody could assist me. So basically I was on my own and of course obviously without my children and um, having to make decisions without anyone to help was incredibly it was just awful, like us, and I can't even. I, I can't, there's no words to it. There really is no words to it, especially when you're out without your children. So take me through then, from the point that you realise that this has happened. My children are gone. I now have that sense of terror. Will I see them again? Who did you turn to first, and what sort of reaction did you get? And because when you look at the political model in Egypt compared to Ireland, they're choke and cheese. So you know, one could be knocking their head against a wall in Egypt. I presume that's what happened. Exactly. So on my return to Ireland, the first thing obviously I did, I reported my case um, to um, my local guard station. Um, Obviously, then I had to um, seek immediate legal um, advice, and even that was quite difficult as well, um, because obviously this is a quite a unique case, and um, 
obviously then after seeking a, a legal advice um, I turned to um, my local representatives for help and I, I really do thank my local representatives for all their help to date um, I really appreciate um, their support um, but a lot more needs to be done And what makes this even more challenging is the fact that Egypt's not signed up to the Hague Convention on Child Abductions. Now, I know we try to have some sort of reciprocity between Egypt and Ireland as far back as I think it was, what, 2014 when Alan Shatter uh, was Justice Minister. He tried to do something, but that came to naught. Yes. um, Obviously, I know that Egypt isn't a signatory of the Hague, but the one thing that's quite upsetting is the fact that they're putting too much on DFA are putting too much onus on this and they're completely ignoring the criminal aspect of the case whereas in my partner is basically um looking for is, is has requests which unfortunately I can't elaborate on. Okay, I, I just want request. to, sorry, sorry Amanda, I just want to be very clear here in saying whilst in your mind you may have seen your husband, you know, engaging in a criminal act, he's been charged with nothing and has not been before the court. So I think it's very important just to underline that, that oh, particular yes. point. Yeah. So, 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 sorry, go on. So basically, um, I do remain deeply concerned that Egypt has not taken this matter seriously. And that, and the one thing that I want all the listeners to know is that obtaining custody in Egypt will not result in the expedient return of my children. And DFA are more than aware of this. So, in short, the advice received um, from Egyptian lawyers stands in in, in very stark contrast to the steps being counselled by DFA as in practice proceedings would essentially require me to live permanently in Egypt. Okay, this is the Department of Foreign Affairs and the advice that you were getting from them and they say to you, go live in Egypt if you want to try and resolve this. If that's the advice, that's the advice. But obviously I don't want to be stranded in a foreign country. How would I put myself in a position to go to a country that I left in in such a, a state in its fear and to go to a country that basically Ireland has basically framed as a country that has many injustices and does not observe basic human rights laws on occasion. Have you had any contact with either your husband or the children since this happened? I was trying to keep in contact with my mother-in-law um, but my ex-partner basically cut that off in June 2022. And was she amenable to have an open line of communication with you and he just decided, no, you're not doing it? It was what we would frame it in Ireland as it was um, it was dry and short. Basically, the only communication that I was receiving was that my children were fine. That was it. And she was also trying to manipulate me into... Um, she was also tr- trying to manipulate me and gaslight me into, um, as we said before, I can't elaborate for further. Yeah, um, I understand. Yeah. So your next step is what? Because it strikes me that try and do this through legal channel channels, whether it be in Egypt or externally, will just not happen for you. And I'm sorry for well, being so so stark no, in, in that, but that's not. that that's the way so it's the looking. First thing yeah, the first thing, obviously, Alan, is to maintain my physical and mental health. That's huge. 
and um, I'm very thankful for everyone who has offered prayers to ensure that I am able to keep going um, and of course obviously my family, friends and my wonderful employer as well um, next thing is I have exhausted all my options here um, basically I had great faith in the Irish government and I still do have great faith in the Irish government that more they can basically push further and have the addiction authorities do the right thing and allow me to return, allow me to go to Egypt and return with my two sons and obviously that will be in the best interests of my children. So basically I've been forced by DFA and the Egyptian authorities to basically, you know, seek custody in Egypt and obviously um, I need a miracle to happen, Alan. That's exactly what I need, a, mir- a miracle to happen in order to have my children uh, return to Ireland. And I believe that will happen. I do believe that. And is it an issue of finance to undertake that procedure or is it a case that legally the likelihood of you succeeding in Egypt if you had the money to go to court would not be successful? It's it's more to do with legally, um, Alan, so it is. It's more to do with the fact that I have even been given advice from the Ministry of Justice in Egypt and the the advice is from the Good Intentions Committee in Egypt that Irish government intervention is required. And we both know that. We're not silly. We know that if if the Irish government really pushes that um, especially given the the whole aspect of my case, my case is not just custody. There's a lot more to it. Obviously, as we know, Alan, I can't elaborate further. That a lot more can be done. Are they Irish passport holders? Yes, they are. They're Irish-born citizens with Irish passports. But yet, the government wants you to go through the usual channels, which you have done, and now you are at yes. a point where you can go no further. And they are exactly. telling you what. Well, basically, um, that I have to obtain custody in Egypt. Yeah. But as you can imagine, I'm incredibly fearful that because I have had to fight so much here in Ireland, that basically if I unwind that cord, that maybe they can turn around and close that door if any further help being offered. I want to ask you about your own, and you, you alluded to it um, at the beginning of the interview, your own mental and physical health around what is going on. And I couldn't imagine for a moment, as a parent of, of two children myself, well, albeit that they're now grown up, what it must be like for you, particularly it's a living hell, so at, it the, is. at this time of year, a week from Christmas, knowing that your children won't be there, opening presents or doing what you ordinarily do traditionally at Christmas. How is that playing on your mind? Um, of course, obviously, it's all, it, it, it's it's harrowing. It's it's terrible. But I live this every day. I've been living this every day since March eleventh, twenty twenty two. So Christmas will be no different. I'm sitting here in my living room. I have my Christmas tree up. I have the lights on. I want my children to know that I never, ever, ever forgot about them ever. And um, as in, I just like I have to keep going. I, that's that's my motto. I have to keep going until my children are back in my arms. You do accept, though, that it's it's possible that you may not of see course. them for a long time. No, no, I know. I know. I get up every morning 
and I know that it's a day closer to seeing my children and I know for a fact that justice will prevail for my children and for myself. And another thing as well, um, I'm a very resilient and diligent sort of a person and I am actually trying to make sure that this never ever happens again and to receive justice for other Irish mothers who have gone through similar. And only last week there was a, a committee meeting in the Oireachtas for a potential bilateral agreement between the two countries. If the two countries can sit and speak about the repatriation of artefacts, I'm sure they can sit and talk about a bilateral agreement and the return of two innocent Irish children. And the difficulty that you're faced with is they are, you know, he is their biological father. He has them in a country where he will probably have more rights than you will if you take that case against him in Egypt. Yes, perhaps. But the thing that um, I also want listeners to know, I, like, as in, like any mother, I don't want my children to be without their dad. But the fact of the case... Um, so, like as in the facts surrounding the case, the best interests of my children are going to be served in Ireland where they can have a high standard of education, they have the comfort of their own home, they uh, can, as we know, Ireland is becoming incredibly multicultural, they will have access to go to mosque if they wish. So like as in, there's no debate in that the best interests of my children will be served in Ireland. And even if my ex-partner had came to me and said that he was unhappy here in Ireland and wanted wished to divorce me, obviously I would have been upset like any um, uh, wife and mother. Mm-hmm. But I would have been able, we, the two of us could have sat down and we could have discussed basically how we were going to arrange custody of our children, etc. And I would have also ensured that he was going to be okay financially as well. Mandy, let me just ask you one final question. And it strikes me this takes all the boxes when it comes to the issuing of a European arrest warrant. Has that happened? No, it hasn't, and um, it's incredibly frustrating. Alan. Uh, sorry, ju- just for the benefit of our of our listeners, if there was a European arrest warrant issued against him, and he were to leave the jurisdiction and go to wherever, anywhere in Europe, he could then be lifted, couldn't he? If there was an arrest warrant out for him, automatically. And another big thing that um, it would fo- it would even give the Egyptian authorities further push to do the right thing on my in the, on behalf of my children and I. Okay, and why hasn't there been a warrant issued? Uh, basically, uh, bureaucracy and um, basically uh, mis- n- n- the Minister for Justice really needs to go, really needs to, to meet with me to discuss my case. Okay, well, there's an invitation to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who was on this programme this morning to meet with you. We must leave it there and we wish you the best. Thank you so much, Alan, for allowing me on the show this morning. Not at all, and I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this programme will be thinking of you on Christmas Day without your children. I wish you a very happy Christmas. And and you too, Mandy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a million. Thank you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, welcome back to the programme. While welcoming the findings by HICWA of very high levels of compliance in the nursing home sector, public, private and voluntary, in its overview report, the CEO of Nursing Homes Ireland said the HICWA report lays bare the state's failure to older people in need of nursing home care. Tyke Daly said that... 
private and voluntary sector has been supporting older people and their families who need nursing home care, without which there would have been a shortage of beds, with the state's provision dropping by a further 2% between 2019 and 22. Tyke Daly joins us this morning. Tyke, thank you for taking our call. Um, let's deal with the here and now and the closure, particularly what we are seeing in rural areas of nursing homes. Is it fair to say whilst they are closing, those beds are being taken up by bigger operators? Is that a fair fair assessment of the situation yeah good good morning alan yeah i mean in in effect uh while there has been over 60 closures in the last number of years uh across 20 counties have lost beds i suppose the nest over those number of years uh, there's still about 300 beds less than there were five years ago so yeah while bigger homes are being built uh, i suppose two points i would say is one is that we're losing many of the smaller uh, homes in, in rural communities so in some parts there's not much point in saying to somebody uh, you know in Castle Bar that there's a bed in, a mm-hmm. bed for you in Castle Knock so you need we need beds in local areas and we need provision in local areas We also must look then therefore at the performance of the Minister whose remit this is under and that's Mary Butler What's your making of how she has performed in that portfolio dealing with this particular situation? Yeah, well, I mean, I think government as a whole has failed and failed miserably, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I don't think it's down to, to one individual minister. Clearly, the minister has responsibility, and we have had some very positive engagement over the years. Uh, but in, in the most recent year, we would be concerned at the failure to address the crisis. And I think the fact now that HICWA, as the independent regulator, have, have highlighted this particular issue, uh, I hope that that would be, I suppose, a catalyst, if you like, uh, for the minister to take action. We want to work with government to address the crisis. Uh, the sector has stood up over many years, not least in COVID. The sector is the largest provider. Uh, and, you know, we need to have a future for public, private and voluntary. But to do that, you know, we need to work collaboratively with mm-hmm. uh, minister and government more broadly. Let me ask you then, as key stakeholders in this, what is your relationship with government? Are they hostile towards you? And I say that because you use the word, the state is discriminating against the private and voluntary sector. Yeah, and, and that word is not used lightly, but it's used on the basis of fact and evidence. And the evidence is quite clear, Alan. Uh, the state knows what it costs to provide care. It's something of the order of €1,000 per day in an acute hospital. It's about €2,000 per week in a public nursing home. And they're expecting the private and voluntary to provide care for just north of €1,000. So the funding model is discriminatory against residents in the private and voluntary sector. And until that is addressed we are going to be in perennial crisis, I would fear. Um, so we need to address that underlying issue of resourcing to ensure we have a sector that has uh, stabilised uh, and no further closures, and also then give the sector the ability uh, to provide additional care required to meet uh, the needs of our ageing population. So w- what do you think is behind this? Do, do you feel that the government perceive you and your model not to be the right model moving forward to deal with an ageing population that will require multiple units from big operators? Well, I mean, if that's the case, then they should come out and say that. Uh, but clearly the policy... Well, what's your view? Do you, do you have a view on it? Well, I suppose I was taken aback last week uh, by some comments in, in the House of the Oireachtas where it talked about, uh, you know, the, the for-profit model and, and institutional investors. But the reality is that without the for-profit model and without the private and voluntary sector, uh, the sector would be in a much, much worse place. I'm confident, and as I said at the outset, the report from HICWA also highlighted the very high compliance levels. 
So because the sector is highly regulated, both from a, a standards point of view and indeed a financial point of view, I'd be confident that the the private and voluntary sector has on the one hand provided high quality care, as evidenced by the HICWA report, provides value for money. But we, if we stretch that value for money too far, as we have seen, we see closures and we see no further development. So it is a tricky, tricky balance. But okay, we want to work, as I say, with yeah, government to, to resolve that. Getting to the nucleus of it, though, seems to be difficult in terms of what is the issue? Why are they not playing ball with you? Surely you must know at this point, giving the level of engagement which you've had with government over the years, because this, this is not a problem that, that yes. just manifested itself. It's been around for quite some time. Well, my concern is that, I suppose, Alan, as you put it, is that there has been some development in the last number of years, but that development has now all but ceased. And I think that development has probably blinded government to think that, you know, investment uh, and additional capacity was still being provided. Um, So they probably felt that uh, there was no need to intervene uh, in in the medium term. Uh, But clearly what we have been saying in Nursing Homes Ireland, we did a PwC report in June of this year, and the fact that the independent regulator now has highlighted it is definitely a wake-up call to, to government. You know, all is not well in the sector. The PwC report highlighted that a third of all operators in 2022 were losing money um, operationally. Uh, we have a sector where it's, we're struggling to retain and recruit staff. Um, so investment is badly, badly needed. And because the fair deal scheme is the only uh, you know, funding mechanism for the sector. Ultimately, government are responsible. But uh, you look at it, well, whatever business you're in, Tig, if you're in the private sector and you can't make yes. money, you're going to die. End of. Absolutely, but we're, we're at, we are the private sector, absolutely, but we are restricted in terms of pricing by the funding model. If you're in a hotel or a restaurant or a shop, you can increase your prices, uh, whereas our members have to negotiate, and I use that word light, loosely, with the National Treatment Purchase Fund, and they effectively set the tariffs. Uh, so on the one hand, you have government, quite rightly, increasing costs around minimum wage, around sick pay and all those positive developments. But on the other hand, the funding isn't keeping pace with it. Um, so that's ultimately the nub of the issue. And as I said a few moments ago, the fact that the sector, uh, or the state rather, is funding its own facilities to the tune of between six and €700 Euros per resident per week extra, that's ultimately the issue. Um, and it is going to require more funding, but we have to look after our ageing population. Uh, we have an already d- challenging acute hospital system. So without a well-functioning and sustainable nursing home sector, we are creating huge, huge challenges for society mm-hmm. both now and into the future. Uh, do you think that the government just don't want you, want you on the pitch? But if that's the case, then they should build their own. But the, the, the um, PICW report also outlines that the HSE provision has reduced in the last number of years. Uh, and we see, you know, the exorbitant cost of the National Children's Hospital. Uh, we see the fact that recently they're building a public home in Clifton and Galway costing £40 million. So, you know, the, the, the state provision just can't do it at the moment. Okay. So if they, wish, if, if they wish to take it on, then that's their prerogative. Ty, uh, let, just let me ask you, and, and I'm running out of time on this, if we course, see the current, the current situation prevailing, this time next year, if, we, if we're speaking about this, how many more units will have closed? Well, in that, that report that Hickwell referred to yesterday was up to 2022. We've seen another nine already this year, and the likely scenario is probably another uh, eight or nine for, for uh, next year. So we're going to see further uh, closures, and we're also going to see a huge slowdown in, in, in additional capacity being provided. So... As I say, we are creating a significant issue, but I'd want to stay positive to finish maybe and say mm-hmm. that 
we want to work with government. We want to work with all parties and none to address this crisis so that we can be proud of the care people provide and have a sustainable, viable, community-based nursing home sector both now and into the future. Tag Daly, CEO of Nursing Homes Ireland, thank you for joining us this morning. Let me get to some of your uh, comments before we uh, leave you. In relation to the fire in Galway, Sarah says what happened in Roscal was deeply upsetting to see. What on earth were the perpetrators thinking? What are they hoping to achieve? It's disgusting to see viable accommodation being destroyed like that. Uh, Re-mental health stigma and mental health. Anna was a bit surprised to hear me, Alan, talk resilience when it comes to mental health, asking what happens to people, what happened to people uh, being resilient. To put it simply, for some people, resilience just isn't an option because they're being uh, struggling for so long and trying to put a brave face on things. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Anna. We covered that, and it's a question I put to Paul, and Paul put that very point to me, so uh, thank you for pointing that out. Tony says that his heart goes out to anyone who suffers with their mental health because, like Paul Gilligan said, there is still so much stigma attached to the issue and people fear what others will think of them if they ask for help or admit that they cannot cope. We need to work harder to break down the stigma surrounding mental health and make it a norm for people to talk about their feelings and if they are feeling okay. Uh, Time for one more, we do. Mick says that while JP's donation is welcome in reality, it will not make huge changes for any one club once it's all divided out. Thank you for those comments. We leave it there for today. We're back with you tomorrow, same time, a little bit after nine o'clock. From myself, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.